I'm glad as you are, I'm sure, that I didn't have to lead the singing this week. That would have been bad. El Shaddai, right here. Doesn't work. Um, well, we are, uh, we're at the, just the start of a new series. We've been looking at the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy that we have recorded. We're going to get back to that next week. This week, I want to do something a little special for you. I want to, um, I want to give you your Christmas message from last week uh, for those of you who weren't able to be with us and wrap it together with your New Year's Eve, New Year resolution, uh, church, uh, State of the Union address message. Can we do that? Can we wrap it all into one? Uh, one of my favorite parts of the holiday season is uh, getting to watch all the old classics. Yeah. And uh, it's harder, the more channels there are, it just seems the harder it is to find them. So I've tried to just start buying one every now and then, buy the DVD. Uh, but I love to just sit down and watch some of the old classics. If I say uh, Tiny Tim or Ebenezer Scrooge, what do you think of? Christmas Carol, right? Christmas Carol. If I say Macy's, Kris Kringle, what do you think of? Miracle on 34th Street or the parade. Macy's kind of throws you off there. Uh, if I say giant pink bunny suit... Uh, tongue on a flagpole, you're going to shoot your eye out, red, red, BB gun. What do you think of? Christmas story. Here's a, here's a more difficult one. Uh, Macaulay Culkin and Joe Pesci. What do you think of? Home Alone. Yeah, it's, it's one of the greats. Uh, Cousin Eddie. Yeah, Christmas Vacation, one of my favorites. But if I say uh, George Bailey, Mary, oh Mary. That's a terrible Jimmy Stewart impression, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I would sing the whole Buffalo Girls, why don't you come out tonight, why don't you come out tonight, why don't you come out tonight, Buffalo Girls. What does that mean? I have no idea. Anybody know what that means? Tell me later, because I have no idea. But yeah, George Bailey, It's a Wonderful Life, is uh, on most of the list, if you Google it, if you pull up the top Christmas movies, the top ten Christmas movies, the best Christmas movies of all time, most of them are going to put uh, It's a Wonderful Life at the top of the list. I don't know if you've ever really thought about it. But um, George Bailey and Jesus have a lot of similarities, have a lot of similarities. You know, It's a Wonderful Life almost didn't make it. It was almost a flop. It started out as, uh, I think, just a short story written by a guy named Philip Van Doren Stern. Uh, I think he just put it on a card to one of his family members. And somehow he got saved and a guy named Frank Capra, who a uh, well-known director, did a whole lot of uh, great movies. Uh, in, in days past, he put it into a movie, but it almost was a flop. But interesting, though, if you think about it, George Bailey, and, and this happens if you watch movies much at all, you find glimpses of the hero. And the ultimate hero is always who? It's, it's Jesus. It's interesting how all heroes are somehow patterned after the character, the personality of Jesus in one way or another. Most of them diverge at some point, but George Bailey is a good example. Let me give you some of the similarities here. Jesus is firstborn of his honored father. George is the eldest son to his father, and his father is pretty well esteemed in the community. He's a good man in the community. And George is the eldest son of his honored father. Jesus inherits all his father has. George, at his father's death, inherits by default the building and loan. Jesus is a savior of a people. George offers, in a sense... Uh, salvation to that community. He offers a better life to everyone who lives there. Jesus dies and is raised. George, in a sense, dies and is brought back to life. Jesus is loved by the angelic realm. You remember at the beginning 
where the uh, little lights are flashing and the angels are talking about George Bailey and that he needs help. And Clarence buzzes in there. And Clarence, after hearing about George and everything that George's life has comprised of, he says, I like George Bailey. And heaven says, yeah, we like him, too. He's admired by the angelic realm. Jesus is a willing sacrifice. George Bailey's whole life was just one giant sacrifice. When he was a child, his brother slid his little sled uh, off the ice into the frozen water. George didn't give a second thought. He dove right in, ended up losing his hearing in one ear because he sacrificed his well-being for his brother. Uh, Later on, uh, you remember old Mr. Gower, the drunk druggist? He's whacking George upside, uh, yeah, whacking George upside that ear. You know, George says, don't hit me in my ear anymore, please. Why? Because uh, George saves Mr. Gower. Mr. Gower, in a drunken stupor over his son's death, puts poison in one of the pills. And George catches it and he says, I'm not going to take that to where you want me to take it. And Mr. Gower's just whacking him. Do what I told you to do. And he says, You're, you put poison in it. He sacrifices well billing for for Mr. Gower, the guy that's beaten on him, he sacrificed for him. Uh, he goes on in his life as he grows up. He gives up his college fund for his brother. Uh, he trades his college days and, and turns it over to his brother so that he can stay and take over the building alone after his father passes. He gives his honeymoon money away. You remember this? He gives his honeymoon money away when there's a run on the banks and uh, everybody comes and they want their money out of the building and loan. And he comes in and his wife says, hey, we've got uh, $5,000, I think. And they just start paying out their own money and they don't go. They sacrificed. Um, even into a frozen river for Clarence the angel. No thought for himself. Willing to give his life for his own insurance. He said, I'm better, I'm better off dead than I am alive. I'm worth more dead than I am alive. His whole life was a picture of sacrifice. Jesus is, uh, in Scripture, our wisdom in a dark place. Uh, George Bailey was wisdom to that town. You remember the scene where Potter was trying to buy up everything when everybody was uh, running on the bank, and George says, listen, people, listen. Potter's Potter's not selling, he's buying. Or maybe it's buying, not selling. I always get that mixed up. But he's the wisdom... When everybody else is confused, Jesus in Isaiah, uh, the Messiah in Isaiah is seen as a suffering servant. And there's a quote that says that the Messiah has spent his strength for nothing. In a sense, there's a picture in Isaiah's description of the Messiah that that on the people, the sacrifice is seemingly wasted. And that is, in a sense, how George feels that his life is a waste. He feels like he's a failure, that nobody respects him. That all he's done, nobody could care less. Jesus is not exalted by the world. George simply lives in the shadows his whole life. But Jesus stays committed to his father's purpose, even while he's scorned by the world, right? So does George. George's friends laugh, they call back, and they mock him for staying in that little one-horse town. And he just stays committed to George's father's purpose of building and loan. Jesus is hated by his adversary, Satan. George is hated by his adversary, Potter. Potter wants the city and everyone that lives in it. That George Bailey, he's like a boil on my neck. And when he can't beat him, what does he try to do? He tries to buy him off. He tries to buy him off. Jesus was tempted by Satan, his adversary. But he sees through the lies. George is tempted by Potter. 
Potter tries to buy him off, says, hey, why don't you come work for me? Remember, and George is sitting down here behind the desk. $20,000 a year. Can I talk to my wife about it? Sure. And then it, it clicks. It clicks. You sit behind your desk, spinning your silly little webs, and just think everyone is going to do what you want them to do. No, no, not me. Not me. Tempted, but he sees through the lies. Jesus is accused of something he didn't do. But he doesn't run away from that. George, uh, I didn't see it until this year when I watched it again. Uh, there's a point where George is uh, hes talking to Potter. And Potter has stolen the money that Uncle Billy lost. $8,000. And now the building alone is in dire straits. And George is sitting there and he says to Potter, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a bad spot. I've misplaced $8,000. Now, George had nothing to do with it, did he? But that doesn't matter. He takes it all upon himself. IRS is coming down. The police are waiting for him at home. He's responsible. And he takes it willingly. I've lost $8,000. George has a lot of similarities to Jesus. Do you remember the premise of the movie, though? The whole movie centers around the question of, is George Bailey worth more dead than he is alive? He gets to the point after Mr. Potter, interestingly enough, points out that his insurance policy is worth more than he is. Puts that lie in in George Bailey's mind. You're worth more dead than you are alive. And then George finds himself on that bridge, ready to jump off. Once again, in a in a cynical way, now to sacrifice for for the well-being of those he loves. Um, the whole premise is after he sees Clarence jump in so that Clarence knows he'll jump in and save him. And then they're sitting there in the drawbridge operator's room and uh, Clarence gets the wise idea. He says, OK, I'll give you that wish. I'll let you see what it's like to know what your life would be if you had never lived. He says, check for Juju's rose petals. They're not there. It's not bleeding anymore, George. What's going on? Well, you've never been born. How's your ear? You can hear out of that ear, can't you? Yeah. Well, you never jumped into that frozen lake. You've got your wish. Let's see what it would be like if you were never born. He runs out. He goes to look for his car that he crashed in the tree. It's not there. He goes back to the bar. Nobody knows him there. They toss him out on his head because he seems like a crazy man. And he starts to notice that everything is changed. What was the name of the town he lived in? Bedford Falls. What's the name on the sign when he comes back out of the river? Pottersville. Now he's in Pottersville. And he starts to see all the things that would not have happened if George Bailey's life had never happened. Now it's Pottersville. There is no building in line. Well, um, let me give you some practical things. You know, if we were to ask the question in comparing George Bailey and Jesus and looking at some of the similarities... What if what if Jesus had never come? What if there were no baby in the manger? What if God had never come to earth? Would anything be different if we ran back into town? From the manger scene and it was empty, what would be different? Let me give you some let me give you some interesting practical points. A guy named uh, Alvin Schmidt wrote a book. How Christianity Changed the World, and it basically evaluated the practical ways, 
All right, not spiritual. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the practical ways that the very life of Jesus changed very real aspects of our society, of our civilization, especially in the Western world. Great book. Let me give you some highlights from this. Okay. Uh, hospitals. He says this. Consider also the issue of health care. Prior to Christianity, the Greeks and the Romans had little or no interest in the poor, the sick and the dying. But the early Christians, following the example of their master, ministered to the needs of the whole person. During the first three centuries of the church, they could only care for the sick where they found them, as believers were then persecuted by the people. But once the persecutions subsided, however, the institutionalization of health care began in earnest. Why? Because of the heart of the Christians based on their Savior. For example, the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in 325 directed bishops to establish hospices in every city. The first hospital was built by Basil in Caesarea in 369. By the Middle Ages, hospitals covered all of Europe and even beyond. In fact, Christian hospitals were the world's first voluntary charitable institution. Care for the mentally ill was also a Christian initiative. Nursing also sprang from Christian concerns for the sick. And many Christians have given their lives to such tasks. One thinks of Florence Nightingale, for example, and the formation of the Red Cross, etc., etc., etc. Everything surrounding health, right? We find roots back to Christianity and changed hearts because of Christ. Education. Uh, While it was important in Greek and Roman culture, it really took off institutionally under the influence of Christianity. The early Greeks and Romans had no public libraries or educational institutions. It was Christianity that established these. As discipleship was important for the first believers, as those to follow, early formal education arose from Christian catechal schools. Also unique to Christian education was, check this out, the teaching of both sexes. Because if you were a woman or a child, you were basically out of luck. Prior to this, individuals from all social classes, ethnic groups were included. Now, there was no bias based on ethnicity or class. And the concept of public education first came to the Protestant first came from our Protestant reformers. Moreover, Schmidt goes on to say the rise of modern university is largely the result of Christian educational endeavors. Check this out. All but one of the first 123 colleges in colonial America were Christian institutions. All but one. While these universities, he says, have lost their Christian identities, it is interesting to read the founding statements of these schools. Take, for instance, Harvard. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal Life. Justice, uh, the ending of slavery. Uh, I watched this documentary on PBS the other day about my hometown and the civil rights movement there. And over and over, as you hear these civil rights leaders, some of whom are still alive, talk about what caused them to do what they did, why they made certain decisions for the civil rights movement that they did. I kept hearing quotes of Scripture turning the other cheek, loving My neighbor, I kept hearing over and over the root, the foundation of the Christianity of the black race that caused them to seek for civil equality. 
sanctity of life. Uh, even art and architecture. I don't know if you thought about it. Many great achievements in art, literature, music. How much poorer would our world be without Christian artists like Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Rembrandt, Bach, Handel, Brahms, Dante, Milton, Bunyan, countless others. How about the, the place of women? In spite of claims of some today that uh, Christianity is oppressive to women, the historical record would show differently. Women uh, were oppressed in almost every culture prior to Christianity. By elevating sexual morality and by conferring upon women a such a high status, the Christian religion revolutionized the place and the prestige of women. The way Jesus treated women was in stark contrast to the surrounding cultures. He changed, he changed the outlook and the equality of how women were appreciated, despite what was going on all around him. Music, I already mentioned some of those names. Bach, I don't know if you realize, at the end of every one of his uh, pieces would write the same thing, solely to the glory of God. That was his intention. That was the motivation for his creativity. Government, self-evident truths, unalienable rights from who? Our creator. Um, Genuine democracy among all levels of society, equality, human rights. Uh, Modern science has even been traced back to some of the foundational roots of Christianity. Literature, economics, science, the idea of experimentation. Um, We could go on and on and on. All right, so do you get the picture here? Very practically, you, you unplug Jesus from the manger. And our civilization, our society especially in the Western culture, is drastically, drastically affected. We are found seriously lacking because there are no chain of events. There are no heart chain of events that make Christians go out and do all these things that we've just talked about. Uh, I read a story. I think it was in uh, the New York Times. It was a quote from the New York Times about this guy who's a proclaimed atheist. And he wrote the story, and the, and the title of the article, I think, was um, Africa Needs God by Proclaimed Atheist. And here was the point of his article. The point of his article was, I don't believe in this God, but here's what I've realized. I'm here in America, and I'm, I'm living my life, but I know the plight of my people in Africa. I know the plight of society in Africa. And he says, I've come to believe that the best thing I can hope for is that God goes to Africa. Let me read you a part of his quote here. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. He's saying here that there's a difference. It's not just the help. It's not just the aid. It's not just what they do. There's a difference between all of what Christianity does and what all these other aid companies, corporations do. There's a difference here. And he explains. He says, these alone, these efforts, these international aid efforts alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. 
Now, here's where it gets interesting. Here's what he says. He said, I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is a part of the package. I wish I could unplug that, in other words. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say that the world would be better off without it. So that's a given. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help them. Fine. If it takes a faith base for you to go and do good things, that's fine. He says, that's what I used to say. What counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It also is transferred to the flock of the missionary. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing from a confirmed atheist. It, it just works. It is just effectual. Okay? Um, it's been said uh, by several different people. Um, one guy by the name of uh, Oz Guinness, maybe you've heard of. He put it this way. The Western world lives off the cut flower of its Judeo-Christian heritage. A guy named Dr. John Warwick Montgomery said this. We live on borrowed Christian capital. Meaning we're reaping the benefits of this man's life and death and its effect on his followers. We're reaping the benefits of it. But the truth is we overlook that. In our society today. Now here's the fact. Up to about 150 years ago. This wasn't the case. General society. Recognized the fact. That Christianity makes a real. And true difference. About 150 years ago. We started to make excuses. We started to. To find reasons why we could explain away. The fact that it was Jesus. And the heart change in his followers. That caused much of what we see to be good. And we started looking for reasons to explain it away. Why? So we can explain away Jesus and so we can explain away God. And so now we don't have to be accountable to him. Right? And then the, the direction of our society started about 150 years ago. And that's, that's, the, that's the direction we're on. We don't, we don't want to be accountable to a God. And so we've got to get rid of any effect that he would have on this world. But you can't do it. This is why you can't, in truth, be an atheist. Because you know in the depths of your heart you have a creator. And what you'll do is you'll create a God of your own liking. You'll create a God that won't hold you accountable. And so now we have all different kinds of forms of spirituality that now I can live with, but I don't have to be accountable to. But the facts are, as this proclaimed atheist noted, the facts are, it just works. There's something about this man's life that changed everything. It changed everything. So that's the practical. Let me quickly give you let me quickly give you some of the spiritual difference. If you were to take Jesus out of the manger, what would we lose? From a theological standpoint, without Jesus, number one, we would not know who God is. All right? Real quick. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He is the image of the what? Invisible. Without Jesus, God remains just a speculation. But now, because he's come, we can know who our God is. Amen. 
Without Jesus, we would not have that image of the invisible. He is the mirror of the invisible. Uh, Number two, the Bible would crumble. You unplug Jesus from history and the Bible would crumble. Here's why. The purpose of the Old Testament is to bring you to who? Christ. All the Old Testament is tied together and wrapped in a nice little bow in the coming of Jesus. If you don't have Jesus in the manger, the Old Testament falls apart. He is the linchpin for all scripture. The Bible would crumble. Paul said that the giving of Christ was to affirm the promises given to our Jewish fathers of old. He is the seed of woman, Genesis 3, that will crush the head of the serpent. If that seed never comes, Satan's head never gets crushed. The Bible and the story, the theology of it crumbles. Deuteronomy 18, we need a prophet like Moses to come. John, we have a prophet like Moses. Uh, Number three. You take Jesus out spiritually, we would not have a savior. Makes sense, right? Perfect child, perfect boy, teenager, man, perfect sacrifice. Now justice, righteousness, perfection is supplied to satisfy the wrath of God. You take Jesus out, there is no salvation. There is no provision for your sins. Moses, you go up for us, right? Because they couldn't go on their own. What do we need? We need a savior to go up and stand before a holy God for us, lest we take the wrath upon ourselves. We need a substitution. We need a Savior. I bring you glad tidings, for unto you a child is born. A what? A Savior. Number four, we'd not have a standard. Take Jesus out, we don't have a standard anymore. Jesus is a picture of man's perfect God, but he's also God's perfect man. Through all ages of life, we have a model. The perfect model, compassion towards men, women, young, old, parents, rich, poor, the handicapped, the Gentiles, the Jews, government, etc. John said the eternal life with the father is manifested to us in Jesus. We do not have that ultimate model without him. He is the ultimate standard and example. Five, without Jesus, we have no hope, meaning that we have no assurance, certainty, Biblically speaking, is removed. It's all, uh, I hope so. Maybe, maybe God will find favor in me. In Christ, we have a certainty. There is no maybe. There is no worry of standing before God. There's a hope in Jesus that my name is in the book of life. He's gone to prepare a place for me. My debt has been paid. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Men will beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and will study war no more. It is a certainty we have because of Jesus. Six, without Jesus in the manger, we have no purpose. We just spin our wheels here on earth. Think about it. Without Jesus, we have no purpose For in him we live, we move, and we have our being. Acts 17, for unto you I bring good news of great joy for all people. Our purpose, uh, the woman at the well, go and tell. That's what she spent her life doing. Let me go and tell. Uh, uh, Gerasene Demoniac, he went and told. The apostles, we can't help but speak of what we've seen In this man, Jesus, Um, over and over and over, the disciples go and make disciples. 
You want purpose in life? You, you find Jesus in the manger and you go and you tell. You can't help but speak of what this one man, this one God man has done. It provides the ultimate purpose for our lives. You don't have to ask anymore, God, what do you want out of my life? Go and tell. Last one, number seven. Spiritually speaking, if we take Jesus out, um, we, are, we are ignorant to what, or more specifically, who it is that we worship. Without Jesus, we don't know what it is, or more importantly, who we are to worship. Deep down, your heart knows that it has been created to worship your Creator. In Christ, you come face to face with the way, the truth, and the life. In that person, we see face to face who it is our heart is crying out and longing to worship as our Creator. I've told you this story before of a little boy who was uh, drawing in kindergarten, and the teacher said, free, free color time, draw whatever you want. She's walking around, she's looking at what the kids are doing, this one kid is drawing, and she says, uh, what are you drawing there? And he says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she kind of chuckled and said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And he just looked up at her and says, well, they will now. <laughs> Jesus, in a sense, is God in crayon. He's the God that we can see. The God that our heart cries out to worship instinctively because we have been created. In Jesus, we get him in, we get that, that infinite God, which no one has seen in crayon, so that, we can, so that we can appreciate him, so that men will know. Through the Bible, and namely in Christ, we find all we need, Scripture says, for life and godliness. Practical and spiritual. Plato, he said this, as you go through life, you must hold to the best opinions of men. As as to a ship in a storm. Unless. Unless. You have a more certain word from God. In Jesus we have that more certain word from God. Form of a child. Grows up. Perfect model. Provides hope. Salvation. A basis for all that life should be. Purpose. Worship. Take Jesus out. You lose all that practical stuff we talked about. And we just touched on it. More importantly, you lose a Savior for humanity. Let me give you one last interesting similarity between George Bailey and Jesus. George Bailey fulfilled the purpose of his father. There's a scene where George is getting ready to take his money and uh, his little brother's graduating, and George is going to go travel the world. He's going to make his life for himself. And he's sitting at the dinner table with his father. And his father says, son, I, I, I hope maybe one day you might come back and, and, and work here at the building and loan. And George kind of in a, uh, in a sarcastic and in a rude way just kind of chuckles and says, I don't really want to be a part of pinching pennies around this, this one-horse town anymore. And his father kind of hangs his head. And then George realizes that this is the will of his father. And the dad says, George's father says, he says, son, we do a whole lot of good here. 
if it weren't for us, if it weren't for us, this whole town would end up in Potter's Field. Later on, when George takes over the building and loan, he ends up fulfilling and using some of the same language of his father. The will of George Bailey becomes the will of his father, which is what? To keep men from having to run to Potter and ending up in Potter's Field. Potter's Field was where anybody had to live if you couldn't, if you couldn't support yourself, if you couldn't afford your own home. If you couldn't get a loan and you couldn't build your own house and make a way for yourself, you had to crawl to Potter and he put you in his field and he put you in his slums. And so all the people who were rejected, all the lowly, all the despised found themselves in Potter's field. Do you know where Potter's field is found in Scripture? And you may may think that some of these, you know, drawing some of these conclusions, these parallels about Jesus and George Bailey, it's a little bit of a stretch, right? But there's something here I think that Frank Capra was touching on, right? Potter's Field, you can find it in Matthew, you can find it in Acts, I think you can find it in uh, Zechariah. Potter's Field is a reference to the field that the Pharisees and the Sadducees bought with the money that Judas forfeited. Remember who Judas was? Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. Why? Because the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they paid him off. Tell us where he is so we can, we can deal with him. They give him money. And when they come and get him, Judas' heart breaks, right? And he goes back and he tosses the money back to him. And he says, I don't want it. I don't want it. And now this is cursed money in the minds of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they can't use it in the temple. So what do they do? They go out and they buy a field. They buy a field so that they can bury the lowly and the rejected and the despised. Those who are not of Israel, you don't get the burial rights of Israel. You're a foreigner. You're a dog. And so we'll buy this field out here called Potter's Field. And we'll put all the lowly and the despised in it. George Bailey took up the will of his father, just as Jesus took up the will of his father to keep you and I from being cast into potter's field. Lowly, rejected, despised foreigners. But no, Jesus draws us near, calls us sons, beloved, children, daughters. So that we're not cast into potter's field. And George spends the rest of his life keeping men, women, boys and girls from that despised place. And he gives up everything, doesn't he? Over and over and over again, he gives up. What does he find out in the end? What does he find out in the end? When the test case is over, when the test case is over and he comes back to real life and he runs back home and Mary has told the town what has happened. You remember what she says? She says, George, all I did was I told a couple people that you were in trouble and the word spread. George is in trouble. And what happened? Everyone flocked to his aid. 
He thought he was wasting his life. All right, now this is where we transition from your Christmas message to your New Year's message you challenged for the, for the year. Okay, here it is. And we'll be done. Um, it, it was a wonderful life means that although George didn't recognize it, his life counted. It made a dent. It had a ripple effect. This one man, whether he knew it or not, whether he recognized that he had success in this world or not, had an effect on everything around him. And when he came home, in the end, after his supposed death, what did he realize? He realized, as it all comes together, that it was worth every sacrifice. Amen? And what do, what do men and women and boys and girls do in George Bailey's home? They cast all their crowns before his feet. They'll give George anything. Now, um, we need, Cornerstone Church, we need George Bailey's. Right? And this is where it, it transitions to us. That we need to take up the model of Christ as a difference maker. We need to take up the model of the George Bailey and be life changers whether we feel like we're having great success in this world or not is inconsequential isn't it the question is when george is in trouble who's going to come running i wrote down this question for myself if they had my funeral tomorrow or plug in your funeral would there be any that would come to testify to the difference my life or your life made for the kingdom I mean, maybe some people would come because they heard about it. And if they don't have to work and if it's convenient, would they show up? What would cause a man to drive hundreds of miles? To get on a plane, to come to the funeral of a human being and say, I've got to, I've got to stand in honor of this man because he changed my life. Would, would anyone do that for me? Would anyone do that for you? Where church is your life making a ripple we need difference makers in 2011 at cornerstone church we need men and women who when looking back on their life despite the earthly success beside the seeming failures when it all comes together when we stand before god it's going to be obvious that we actually made a difference with our life and we didn't just accumulate a bunch of stuff. That lives were impacted. That there were relationships made for the sake of eternity. Uh, I was with a friend this past week and we were talking about different places we've lived. And um, I was asking him, you know, where that you've lived, you know, do they, do they, does one in particular feel like home or do, you know, do they all kind of feel like home in different ways, et cetera? And, and one of the ways we started to think about it was, you know, if you're in a place, um, are there people that if you know you're going to be there, you're going to, you're going to make sure you call them and you hang out with them. You know, that, that's kind of how you know that you've, you've made a difference there or that someone else made a difference in your life. Yeah. So, uh, Maybe you think about your life this way. Like if, if someone you've known in the past is coming through Atlanta, Georgia, are they going to be compelled at all to want to stop to see you because of the difference you've made in their life, because of the relationship you've formed in their life? I mean, who have you built relationships with 
that if you go to where they are, you're going to make sure you call them. I mean, we've got to ask ourselves these kind of questions. Lest we come to the end of our life and it's not a wonderful life in the kingdom's eyes. It may have been all fun and games and great for us. But in the evaluation of heaven, what will our life amount to? And so we've got a bunch of opportunities. We've been talking about them in your bulletin today. There's a whole list of all that Cornerstone has planned for 2011. Uh, Jim Maston was right on target when he, uh, when he said a couple of weeks ago, uh, what did you say, uh, Jim, that Daryl's got more ideas than, uh, who was it, Albert Einstein, somebody, somebody brilliant, right? Somebody brilliant. I was sitting with another friend yesterday, and I was telling him about the garden. He just looked at me, and he just shook his head like, where do you come up with this crazy stuff? You know, I think it was a compliment. But here's what I'm saying. We've got all kinds of crazy ideas, folks. We've got all kinds of things we can, we can do to give you opportunities to be difference makers right where you are, in your family and in your community. I can't, I can't make you take hold of them. I can help you find ways. We can give you the tools. We can help equip you. We can encourage you. I can't, I can't make you show up here on Sundays. You know, I was sitting there this morning, and, and I'm just, I'm thinking, it's so hard for, for me as pastor of a church, okay? Because I feel like I have, I have one day a week to, to direct the flock. And this guy's not here. And that guy and his wife, they're not here. Now, I'm not pointing to anybody in particular, but they're not. They're, this week, they're not here. Next week, that one's not here. And I, and I feel like, man, this is kingdom work, and, and I've got one chance a week. And, then, and, and that, that thing we needed to say that God wanted to say to us today, that guy's missed it. How do I, how do I go back to him? Um, some of you know me as kind of an anal, very particular kind of person. You're probably wondering why all those chairs are still in the back of the room. Daryl would not leave those chairs in the back of the room. It's distracting. It's hideous. There's got to be somewhere else we can put those chairs. I hope you've noticed them. They've been in here for about a month. They fit in the room. They fit. That's the point. They fit in this room. (laughs) These chairs fit, and we've got room. Those also fit, and we've got room. 2011, what is the... What is the battle cry for us? It's the same. It's the same thing. Guys, here at Cornerstone, we're attempting to build a real family to drop the pretense. We're not here for your entertainment value. We're here to build real relationships, to really help one another, to really declare the glory of our real God so that we all grab hold of our real purpose and we're genuinely and truly motivated to walk out these doors and say to the neighbor on that side of us, maybe the neighbor on this side of us or across the street from us, there is one who came and he, he made all the difference in the world. And that we might together just pray that simple prayer, make that simple request before God as we start this new year. God, help me to find a way to be a difference maker. Maybe it has to start in my home. And maybe I've got to deal with some sin issues so that I can get out of my own way. That's part of the work. That's part of the walk. We've got to do that. God, help me to be a difference maker where I work, where I live. 
Let's pray. We'll be done. Father, there are, uh, there are hopefully men and women in our life that have been difference makers. Hopefully the uh, concept, the principle that we're talking about this morning, um, we can each see in our mind's eye that man or woman, maybe the parent, maybe the loved one, maybe a coworker that made a difference in the course of our life. Father, would the effect of the love of the coming of your Son cause us to extend love in such a way that uh, ripples beyond these walls into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our homes? That, Father, if we come to the end of our life, we'll see that we've given ourselves to something with a worthy cause, something bigger than ourselves, something bigger than our career plan, our five-year plan, our 10-year plan, our retirement plan. Father, oh, that we would come to the end of our life and find that we've, we've done something of eternal worth. And Lord, I, I pray for each one who's here that because their life makes a difference, at, at the day that we celebrate their they're going home. Men and women and children would stand, if only in their hearts and in their minds, to testify to the difference that these men and women have made in their life. May, may people come from across the country to honor the difference they made. And might all glory go back to the one who started started it all. Lord, use us in 2011. Make our smiles bigger. Make our glow brighter. Might the Christ that lives in us overflow out of us, affect us, change us, sharpen us, challenge us to be the light in the darkness to be the real love of God come down to earth. And that's really what we, we are. We are we're the new babe in the manger, so to speak, Father. We are the evidence of your love here on earth. We are your hands and your feet. We are your, your grace and your gentleness and your peace and your mercy. We are your justice on display to all the world in crayon, so that they can understand who you are and the salvation you provided. But we're going to get up now and we're going to, we're going to be dismissed. Lord, would you not let us sleep until we've dealt with these challenges, that in 2011 we would be difference makers, that we would find that one person, that one family, that we could not just connect to this church, but we could most importantly connect to you. Give us souls in this place. Might the waters of this baptismal pool remain filled this year because men and women are being saved. Because men and women are being saved. Give us direction through your spirit. 
Give us, give us the love that we need because it's, it's not something we have on our own. Father, we need it from you. In Christ's name, who is our cornerstone. Amen.